Hey everybody, I'm going to tell you the story today of one of the biggest myths in U.S. history, and that is the story of the lost cause, which is going to be the focus of period five, topic two for us today. I don't know if you remember at the start of the year, I, I read some quotes to you that I think kind of inspire my approach to U.S. history, and as a history teacher, I, I want to kind of impart on you on the importance of history as a discipline. One of the quotes I read to you was from James Lowen, who's actually a sociologist, uh, but he's, he does a lot of writing about, about the field of history. And he had this really good quote that I like. And he says, at its best, his, uh, history embodies the triumph of evidence over ideology. And we are going to do that a lot here today when we review period five, topic two, the lost cause. The lost cause uh, is a great example of a myth that has, um, you know, that, that's had its day in the sun. And we are going to use evidence to bust that myth up in, in many, many different ways. Now, I do want to put all my cards on the table before we go any further here. I'm going to do a lot of bashing on the South, and I'm going to really go after the Confederacy. Um, but, be, but before I do that, um, and before you write me off as just some biased Northerner, I think what you need to understand is that I have a direct connection to the Confederacy. Um, so I have a great-great-great-great-great-grandfather who would have fought in the Civil War for the South, Okay, not for the good guys, but for the but for the Confederacy. Um, my middle name is Robert, so my full name is Matthew Robert Moore, and that name Robert was the name of my great grandfather. Okay, so I have, um, you know, it's my grandfather's father. Uh, that Robert was named after another Robert up the um, family tree above him. Uh, and that Robert would have been fighting in the Civil War. And you can see his, his papers here. Uh, this is the muster roll. And, and uh, you can see that he's, you might see the word Union there, but that does not mean he's joining the Union side. That's the name of the county that he, he was from in North Carolina. Um, but and if you take a look down there towards the bottom, um, <clears throat> at the bottom of the company muster roll, it says he was killed in action. Uh, Spotsylvania Courthouse on the 19th day of May 1864. Pretty uh, pretty ugly battle Spotsylvania Courthouse was in 1864. That was a uh, Ulysses S. Grant versus Robert E. Lee battle. So um, why am I showing you this? Why am I talking about this? Well, I want, I want you to know that um, just because I have an ancestor who served in the Confederacy does not mean that I have to uh, defend every single thing that that person did and defend everything the Confederacy did. You know, just because I share a bloodline with that person does not mean that I have to totally go all in and honor and worship every single thing that that person did, right? So, so nobody really, I mean, <clears throat> nobody should have a more invested stake in defending the Confederacy than me. And I'm here to tell you, that I don't. I, there, there's no reason to defend the Confederacy. There's no reason to defend this ancestor that I have. Uh, and I'll kind of explain why here as we go forward. So uh, I also want to, be, you know, before we wade into the waters on how terrible the, the South was during the Civil War, um, talk about 
this is not some like partisan issue, okay? Um, we're going to do a lot of myth busting here today. And uh, right at the outset, I'm going to link some videos for you here to show you that um, myth busting the lost cause is not just some like liberal agenda or conservative agenda. Um, I can show you two videos real quick here, one from Prager University, which is an incredibly right wing YouTube channel that does a, a really quick deconstruction and myth bust of the lost cause of the Civil War. And the other video clip comes from The Daily Show, Larry Wilmore. Uh, which is, a, if you know anything about Comedy Central Daily Show, it's a pretty liberal uh, news program. Okay, and both of these, both of these videos go after the lost cause interpretation of the Civil War. So I'm showing you that to to try to point out um, that when we myth bust the Civil War, we're not being politically correct. We're being correct, correct. Uh, this is this is a bipartisan issue. Historians sometimes have disagreements about things like. When did the market revolution begin? Or when did the civil rights movement begin? Uh, or how effective was um, so-and-so's tactics in this, in this movement? Well, that, that could be up for debate. But what is not really up for debate in the historical community, what there is broad consensus about is what caused the civil war, why the South fought, what they stood for. Like, it's very crystal clear. The evidence is just overwhelming on this issue. And, and so let's dive into that, right? Evidence over ideology, as James Lowens says. Was the American Civil War fought because of... All right. Thanks for indulging me in my technical difficulties there. Um, so what I did with you for your reading guide is I tried to list some, some myths uh, down the left column. And then, you know, I, I'd briefly try to explain that element of that myth. And then on the other side of the column, I would give you some evidence and arguments that historians use to dispel that myth or poke holes in that myth. So the very first one, when we're thinking about the lost cause, the very first myth of the lost cause is that slavery was not the main cause of the Civil War, okay? And I, it, it's still, it's not, this myth is not limited to the South, it's not limited to the past, it's still showing up. There was a survey done in 2015, uh, nationwide survey, and 53% of uh, respondents say um, slavery was uh, a main cause of the Civil War. But like, okay, that's a slight majority, but that's a that's a troublingly small number, 53%. I'd like to see it much higher um, because slavery was the main cause of the Civil War. So 47% of the American public is, is pretty misinformed. All right, the, what you're going to hear people say with this myth, so this is like stuff that would go to the left column in the notes, is that you're going to see, you're going to hear people say, well, slavery could not have been the main cause of the Civil War um, the South was not fighting to defend slavery because most white Southerners did not own slaves. You know, so most of those guys going into battle were not slave owners. Um, so that's one claim that they'll make. Another claim that they'll make. Lincoln was, uh, you know, said several times in, in various letters and speeches that uh, the North was not fighting to, to end slavery. And that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. Right? Um, They'll say things like, this wasn't a war over slavery. The South was just fighting for states' rights. Uh, the South seceded because it, it wasn't about slavery. It was about self-defense. It was about a tyrannical government. It was about tariffs. It was about economic issues. It was about cultural differences. It was about anything, it was about anything but, but slavery. So how do historians counter that? Well, historians 
go to primary sources, right? If we want to know why the South seceded, we know when they seceded. We should go back and we should find documents from that time period. And we should read those documents. And as it turns out, the South was not trying to hide the reasons why they were seceding. It was kind of like when the United States declared independence from Great Britain. We didn't keep it a secret. We declared it, right? We wrote a Declaration of Independence, and we wrote all the reasons down in the Declaration of Independence why we were declaring independence. Guess what? The South did the exact same thing when they seceded from the United States. They issued secession documents. And they were crystal clear as to why they were seceding. And these secession documents were not written by just like one person. They were, they were debated in conventions. There was consensus reached on what to put into these documents. They were voted on. And the votes were overwhelmingly, all, like nearly unanimous votes in almost every single southern state to um, publish these, these secession documents. So these are breakup letters that have survived history that we can go back, we can find, and it's very easy to figure out why the South seceded. They wrote it down in the documents, okay? And what, do you, what, what happens when you read these documents is you find out the South is pretty clear that slavery was the reason why they're seceding. They just said it over and over and over again. I'll show you some examples. What they don't say, what you're not going to find in the secession documents are big passages about like states' rights and tariffs. You're not going to find that. Uh, another source that historians really, you'll see them use over and over again to show what the Confederacy was all about, what secession was all about, is what's called the Alexander Stevens speech. Alexander Stevens was a vice president of the Confederacy. And he gives this, gives a speech, and this key quote from the speech, he says, Our new government, he's talking about the Confederacy, just launched. Our new government was founded on slavery. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, submission to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. He makes it very clear that the Confederacy equals white supremacy, right? Confederacy is here to protect and defend slavery. He's the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens is. He's a guy who'd probably know what the Confederacy is all about. Um, so that speech comes up again and again. We're going to read that one together in class, the full, the full text of that speech. Another question that historians might ask is, if, if the Civil War, if secession in the Civil War was about something other than slavery, you know, when these states seceded, they did not want to, South Carolina did not want to be the only state to secede, right? They wanted to recruit other states to join them. So when they sent uh, mission groups out to, to speak to other legislatures and encourage them, lobby them to secede, how come they never sent anybody, they never, no southern state ever sent any delegation to a free state to encourage them to secede? They only recruited other slave states to secede. And you can read all about this in a book called Apostles of this Union. It tracks all of these delegations that went across the South to try to lobby other states to secede. These were very successful delegations. Like, these guys were very good at lobbying governors to call special sessions of the legislature, getting permission to speak in front of these legislatures, drafting uh, sample documents for them, doing all the work for them. Never, never went to a free state. Only went to the slave states. What's up with that? Right? And then to counter the states' rights argument, we have to remember that States' rights was not just an issue that was unique to the South. Every state cared about their own states' rights. And by the time you get to the 1850s, the region of the country that's using states' rights 
arguments the most is the North. And they're saying we're going to use states' rights to resist uh, encroaching federal legislation like the Fugitive Slave Act. We're going to ignore the Fugitive Slave Act. And the South was getting angry that the North was using states' rights arguments. So it doesn't really hold water to say that the you know, the South was, was uh, the only region that cared about states' rights. Another question sometimes people ask is, if you truly believe that the South seceded for states' rights, or if you think the Civil War was not about slavery, that it was about states' rights, just ask people, states' rights to what? What, what right was it that the Southern states were hoping to do, you know, to protect? And it all comes back to slavery. You just have to read the secession documents. Let's take a look at some of them. Here's South Carolina. Let's see what they have to say. Uh, so they come right, they're the first state to secede, and they're referring to Lincoln's election. They say, an election of a man of the high office of president of the United States whose opinions and purposes are hostile to slavery. Later, the public mind must rest in the belief that slavery is in the course of ultimate extinction. Some of the states, by elevating to citizenship persons who, by the supreme law of the land, are incapable of becoming citizens, they refer over and over again to this fear that the North is trying to push slavery into extinction that the North is um, pushing black people into citizenship and that they have just elected Lincoln president and his opinions are hostile to slavery. Well, that appears to be the big concern for South Carolina in their secession document. Let's take a look at Mississippi. First sentence, Mississippi. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. This is Mississippi's declaration of secession. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. Not tariffs, not states' rights, not defense of our homeland. It's slavery. Everything comes back to slavery. Later, a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. There is no choice left us but submission to the mandates of abolition, like abolition of slavery, or dissolution of the Union. We'd rather totally dissolve the Union than submit to abolition. Louisiana. The people of the slaveholding states are bound together by the same necessity and determination to preserve African slavery. Louisiana made it crystal clear why they were seceding, to preserve African slavery. How about Alabama? The election of Mr. Lincoln cannot be regarded otherwise than a solemn declaration on the part of a great majority of the northern people of hostility to the south, her property, and her institutions. Hmm... Her property. What are, wonder what property the South, especially Alabama, might be thinking about right there. Let's go further down. Uh, that uh, Lincoln's inauguration inaugurates all the horrors of a San Domingo servile insurrection. That would be the Haiti slave revolt. Consigning her citizens to assassinations and her wives and daughters to pollution and violation to gratify the lust of half-civilized Africans. They put this in their secession document that they were seceding because if Lincoln gets elected... Uh, Freed black slaves will be running amok in Alabama, raping white women. All right, this was a this was a debated secession declaration. Consensus was reached on this paragraph, and it was signed off on by dozens of of people who participated in the secession convention. They believed that they believed that was going to happen. Texas, all white men are and of right ought to be entitled to equal civil and political rights, just white men. Servitude of the African race, servitude would be slavery, as existing in these states is mutually beneficial. All right, Texas, thanks for that. So that should clear up that first 
myth, right? Evidence over ideology. The evidence is clear, right? The South, if the South wanted to break up for something other than slavery, they sure did a terrible job explaining that in their secession documents. They just said slavery over and over and over again, state after state after state in their secession documents. Let's take a look at another element of the lost cause myth. There's another myth surrounding the Civil War that the North was destined to win from the outset. And if you believe that, it makes the South look like all the more of an underdog, heroic, valiant, uh, look at these guys holding their own against this overwhelming North. Um, Shelby Foote is a big name in, in, in kind of pushing this uh, interpretation. He was featured prominently in the most watched Civil War documentary ever. It's called just called The Civil War. It's like a seven-part miniseries. PBS created it in the 1990s. And this is the key quote Shelby Foote has. I think that the North fought that war with one hand behind its back. I don't think the South ever had a chance to win that war. All right, that's a perfect summary of this myth. The claims, this you'll hear this, about this myth, that, you know, people will say, well, the North had way more. And, and you're going to see, open up any U.S. history textbook, and you're going to see a chart in the opening pages of the Civil War chapter where you're going to see all of the advantages that the North had laid out in some type of chart. And I have an example of one here on slide 16, that the North had more men, that the North had more weapons, North had more railroads, more food, more factories, more resources. Um, you see it in, in some of these Confederate monuments. Um, you see phrases like, I have a, a picture of a Confederate monument for Richmond, and it says, from Sumter, where the, that would be Fort Sumter, war started, to Appomattox, where the war ended. Four years of unflinching struggle against overwhelming odds. Overwhelming odds. The South stood up to overwhelming odds. Right? And this is what lends its, this, this myth is what gives that lost cause narrative its name. Right? If you think that the South was up against overwhelming odds, if you think that they were going to lose from the get-go, then that's why we can call it a lost cause. They never had a chance, right? They never had a chance. The North had all these, the North had all the advantages. Uh, and that, if you believe that, that makes the Southern men who did fight, that makes them seem even more heroic. Wow, these guys volunteered. They, 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 my great-great-great-great-grandfather signed up to fight in a war that he knew they were going to lose? Wow, what a, what a heroic person standing up to these overwhelming odds. Well, here's the problem with that. The South had, you can list all those other advantages, they're true, but the South had the most important advantage of all, right? They did not need to win. They just had to avoid defeat. They could use the Fabian strategy like George Washington did in the American Revolution. You got to remember that the side that's always had this advantage in just about every war in world history usually wins. The Americans had this advantage in the American Revolution. The Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, had this advantage in the Vietnam War. Uh, the United States is having a hell of a time, had had a heck of a time in Iraq and Afghanistan because their opponents were using this advantage. So the South had it, right? They just had to avoid defeat um, and outlast the North. And they got really close to that. A lot of people think they'll like the war's over after Gettysburg. Gettysburg's in 1863. It's not. The closest the South gets to winning this war is 1864 during the election of 1864. Lincoln has to run for re-election. And the guy running against him is George McClellan, one of his old generals. And McClellan's campaign is elect me and I will compromise with the South. I'll end this war. I'll pull the troops out of the South. If that happens, the South gets to hold on to slavery. The South gets to claim victory. Right? So um, that's, that's problematic, right? That's not... That's not the South up against overwhelming odds. The other thing you got to remember is if, if 
Southern men truly believed, if my great-great-grandfather truly believed that they had no fighting chance in this war, that no reasonable person would volunteer to fight and die in a war in which they're absolutely certain they're going to lose. It doesn't make sense. You're not going to see hundreds of thousands of, of Confederate men volunteer uh, to fight in a war that they think they're going to lose. Maybe a few dozen, a few crazy hundred, but not hundreds of thousands. You don't get that level of participation unless these guys think there's a chance. And there was, right? And, and up until 1864, there was a really good chance they were going to pull off something there. Third element, third part of this myth is that, you know, boy, these guys were heroes for standing up to this, to this oppression. Um, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, this is his gravestone. And notice how he put a beatitude in the middle of his gravestone. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that poor persecuted Jefferson Davis. And, uh, and he had a, a monument for him on, on, in Richmond on Monument Avenue. Um, and this was a key quote from that, that uh, monument. It says, With constancy and courage unsurpassed, he sustained the heavy burden laid upon him by his people. When their cause was lost, there's the lost cause, with dignity he met defeat. With fortitude he endured imprisonment and suffering. With entire devotion he kept the faith. All right, so when we're when you're hearing things about like, oh man, these Confederates, yeah, well, how heroic were they? The good for them for standing up for oppression. Um, thing claims you're going to hear in that realm are reminders that, yeah, oh wait a second here, folks. Most white Southerners remember they didn't own slaves, um, and men were not fighting to protect and defend slavery. They're fighting to protect and defend their homes, their family, their land, their property, their culture. They're fighting to repel an invasion. They're fighting for self-government. They're fighting against oppression and tyranny. Um, I've got on slide 21 here, I've got all sorts of pictures, uh, paintings from this guy named Mort Kunstler who makes a lot of money um, painting these very romantic images of, of the Civil War, especially from the Southern point of view. Uh, you can probably guess that there's quite a few Southerners who eat these up and uh, they, they buy into this idea of how heroic these Southern men were. Um, what we have to remember is that, yeah, there's a lot of white Southerners who don't own slaves. But just because most white Southerners did not own slaves doesn't mean that they didn't have a reason to defend the institution, right? That there, there are 4 million enslaved people living in the South at the time of the Civil War. If they are all freed, what will that new society look like? That's 4 million new people that could compete with poor white people for jobs, for social relations, for marriages. And no matter how terrible a poor white person's life is as long as there's slavery, their life's better than somebody else. Okay, and just because they maybe can't afford a slave now doesn't mean they don't want to. So they're, they're, these are all reasons. I just give you three reasons why a white person who doesn't own a slave might still be willing to put their life on the line to try to protect and defend that institution. Um, yes, some of us have ancestors who fought for the Confederacy. That does not mean that they automatically get our unconditional pride. Okay, our ancestors should not automatically earn all unconditional pride from us. Um, they should have to earn it. They should do some good deeds to earn that unconditional pride. Um, yes, they fought, right? They were warriors, but that doesn't necessarily automatically make them patriots. We cannot pick and choose which parts of the war to remember and which parts to forget. 
that that ancestor I have, I can't pick and choose which which parts of his actions in the war to remember and which parts to forget. Civil War reenactors love to do this. They love to reenact just the parts of the war that they really like, and they don't reenact anything that maybe makes the South look bad. Nobody reenacts this battle called the Battle of Fort Pillow, where a bunch of African-American soldiers from the North um, get trapped, surrounded, run out of ammunition, and attempt to surrender. And instead of offering them normal terms of surrender, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest and his group of soldiers under his command decide to outright massacre uh, these African-Americans. So nobody, nobody's reenacting that. Nobody's reenacting that Battle of Fort Pill. That's a good example of just picking and choosing which parts of the war to remember and which parts to forget. The South, we have to remember, was very clear about what they were fighting for. And any man that signed up to fight for the South knew, what, knew why they were fighting, right? This was not a hidden agenda. Uh, they knew they were going off to fight in a war in which they were fighting for a country that was a white supremacist country. That was a country founded on white supremacy that was founded to protect and defend the institution of slavery. That was crystal clear. We already looked at the secession documents to prove that. The South, how oppressed were they really? You know, blessed are they which are persecuted, poor Jefferson Davis. When they secede, they didn't really, if, if, let's just say, what if the tariff is the big issue? Even if that were to be the big issue, the South still had power in the federal government before they seceded. Uh, the Democrats still had more seats in the Senate than, than the Republican Party did. And the Southern Democrats especially still dominated the Supreme Court. Roger Taney was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He issued the Dred Scott case in 1857. Dred Scott said you can't stop the expansion of slavery. The Republican Party wasn't even um, saying that they were going to end slavery, right? They just wanted to try to stop the expansion of it, but the Supreme Court had even blocked that possibility. So how are you going to overturn the Supreme Court? You're going to need an amendment. How are you going to pass an amendment without the South? You can't. You can't do that. So they were not oppressed in any way, shape, or form. There were so many protections in the Constitution that were going to protect them, and it made it a lot easier to get some some um, civil rights laws passed once they left. Another question to ask yourself is, is these people that you maybe want to celebrate just because they're ancestors, what would this country have looked like if, if the Confederacy had won, right? What, let's say you celebrate this person. Well, it, it may be easier to celebrate them when they, they were fighting on the losing side, but what if they had won? What would that country look like? How, long, how much longer would slavery have continued? How many more families would have been separated um, because of that? Some quotes that I found kind of helped me digest what was happening in my family tree um, and this discovery that I had an ancestor that um, uh, fought in the Civil War. Um, this wasn't a huge shock or surprise for me. My grandfather, uh, his mother and father, so my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather, were born and raised in North Carolina, and their families had deep, deep, deep roots in North Carolina. So we can trace our ancestry all the way back to the 1700s in North Carolina. So it came as no shock to learn that I had a direct ancestor who fought for the Confederacy and then many other of his brothers uh, also uh, fought for the Confederacy. But, um, you know, these, these quotes helped, helped me kind of digest what was going on in my family. Duncan Watts is a sociologist. He said, one cannot simply decide at one's convenience when to identify with one's ancestors and when to absolve oneself of them. Either you're a part of that extended community, in which case you must share the costs as well as the benefits, or you're not, in which case you get neither. 
Okay, so you can't, I can't pick and choose like which parts of this fam family tree I wanna um, like ignore. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has, a, has a, another good quote about this. The last slaveholder, last slaveholder has been dead for a very long time. The last soldier to endure Valley Forge has been dead much longer. To proudly claim the veteran, you know, our country loves to celebrate Revolutionary War, 4th of July, that's what he's referring to there. And disown the slaveholder, is patriotism a la carte. A nation outlives its generations. We were not there when Washington crossed the Delaware. But Emmanuel Loitz's rendering, that famous painting, has meaning to us. We were not there when Woodrow Wilson took us into World War I. We are still paying out the pension. So what ta Coates here is saying is, yeah, we were not the ones, I was not the one who enslaved people. I, I was not the one who purchased these slaves. I was not the one who fought to defend the Confederacy. Um, but, but I am a descendant of somebody who has, and I can't, I can't, I can't be like a proud American and just celebrate. Oh, I just want to celebrate this one good thing in my, in my family tree and in, in my nation's history, but then just ignore all these other things that, that didn't go so well. Um, all right. Next, let's move on to the next element of the myth. Let's focus on Robert E. Lee, the big general for the South. How much of an American hero is he? He's a hell of, heavily celebrated figure in, in the United States. The man had has appeared on a U.S. stamp several times, and we can't forget he led armies into battle to try to destroy the United States. Can you imagine? <laughs> Who's the biggest name uh, in your lifetime who's attacked the United States? Maybe Osama bin Laden. Can you imagine Osama bin Laden winding up on a U.S. stamp? Uh, it's, it's just shocking. So Robert E. Lee, how did he get there? What, what claims were people making about Robert E. Lee that, that made him a celebrated figure? Well, um, you're going to often hear about how much of a military genius he is, not just in the Civil War, but going all the way back to the Mexican-American War and his uh, work at West Point. Um, that you'll hear people say never really fought for slavery, but only for his state um, and his and his new country. He was a defender of liberty. He faced off against much larger armies than his, uh, and he encouraged his troops to surrender peacefully at the end of the war. Those are things that you'll hear people say about Robert E. Lee. Um, let's hear some counter evidence. Ulysses S. Grant, the man he, he squared off against, Ulysses S. Grant wrote this in his memoirs. Lee fought one of the worst causes for which a people ever fought, one for which there was the least excuse. W.E.B. Du Bois, very famous pioneer in African-American history, um, black civil rights figure in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, one of the first to speak out against this like cult of Lee. Uh, and he said, Lee had physical courage but lacked moral courage to stand up for justice for the Negro. So questions that historians might ask about Robert E. Lee. What would the country look like? This guy that we're putting on all these monuments, what would the country look like if Robert E. Lee was victorious? Is that something that we want to celebrate? Robert E. Lee uh, thought slavery was a positive good. Um, Eric Foner is a historian. I'll read a quote from him where he talks about Lee's views on, on slavery. Um, Lee, we can't forget, as a soldier, committed treason. Like, he, he took an oath when he was at West Point. He took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and violated that and then went to war and led an army in battle against the United States. He committed treason. 
was he ever charged with that and put on trial and put in prison? No, but the man clearly committed treason. Um, in the, his campaign that led to the Battle of Gettysburg, he was kidnapping free black people. His army was. He was, he was totally sanctioning this. But the army was kidnapping free black people in the north, returning to them south, selling them into slavery. Uh, this is in 1863. And this whole notion of him like getting his guys to surrender peacefully, yeah, he told them to lay down their guns. But he never said anything about, like, let's be nice to African-Americans or let's, like, help Reconstruction go forward or let's help mend the wounds between whites and blacks. He, he totally resisted equal rights for African-Americans during Reconstruction. There's one of his generals, uh, James Longstreet, who, who didn't sit quietly on that issue, who became a much different person during Reconstruction and had a change of heart and worked hard to try... Um, to uplift African-Americans in the South after the Civil War. James Longstreet, look him up. You know, what you're going to notice about James Longstreet? There's no monuments for James Longstreet. Um, and it, it might have a little bit to do with that. W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, another quote from him about Robert E. Lee. It is ridiculous to seek to excuse Robert Lee as the most formidable agency this nation ever raised to make four million human beings goods instead of men. Either he knew what slavery meant when he helped maim and murder thousands in its defense, or he did not. If he did not, he was a fool. If he did, Robert Lee was a traitor and a rebel, not indeed to his country, but to humanity and humanity's God. W.E.B. Du Bois, coming out swinging. This is Eric Foner. He's one of the biggest names in uh, Civil War history, Reconstruction history. Uh, he said, Lee felt that the painful discipline to which slaves were subjected benefited blacks by elevating them from barbarism to civilization and introducing them to Christianity. Uh, one last quote here from Max Boot, who's a historian, pretty conservative uh, historian. And he uh, he wrote this article. I, I found it was quite interesting. Um, when, or when the big initial wave to get rid of Confederate monuments was kicking off 20, when was that, 2016, 2017, the Charlottesville protests. One of the, um, one of the counter arguments you would hear, the one uh, argument you hear to defend the monuments would be a snowball effect. Like if we get rid of this Robert E. Lee monument, what's next? Are people going to want to remove George Washington monuments, Thomas Jefferson monuments? Um, and Max Boot had a really good response to that. He said, at the most basic level, the difference between George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, on the one hand, and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, Stonewall Jackson's a Confederate general, on the other comes down to this. The former, Washington and Jefferson, helped create the United States of America. The latter, Lee and Jackson, fought against it. It's as simple as that. What is it that we are supposed to be grateful to the Confederates for? For seceding from the Union? For in the case of former U.S. Army officers such as Lee and Jackson for violating their oaths to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies foreign and domestic? For triggering the most bloody conflict in American history? For fighting to keep their fellow citizens in bondage? Is that something we want to celebrate? Next myth, next element of the myth, that the Confederate flag, that these Confederate statues are not symbols of hate, that we shouldn't take them down, um, and you'll hear claims like they're just a symbol of Southern pride. They're just a symbol of rebelliousness. They, uh, if we remove these statues and we rename forts, we're erasing history. Um, this is just a way for me to honor my ancestors. This is heritage, not hate. All right, you're, you're going to hear things like that. Um, 
South Carolina uh, ended up removing the Confederate flag that was flying over their state capitol after uh, Dylan Roof um, committed a, a mass murder in a famous black church in the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and what they discovered after he, he, uh, he was welcomed into this church, he joined a prayer group in the basement, and then he killed everybody who was in the prayer group. Um, and upon further research on Dylan Roof, it was discovered that this man had an infatuation with the Confederacy um, and had a blog in which he wrote all about how he wished he could return African-Americans to slavery and how the Confederacy was one of the greatest governments ever. And he had all these pictures of him shrouding himself with the Confederate flag. Um, and because of that, right, because of that connection, it was very finally crystal clear for people that the Confederate flag was a symbol of hate. Dylan Roof embraced that symbol because of how much of a racist he was. Now, some people said, well, he had a sick and twisted view of the Confederate flag. I don't think so. He knew exactly what that flag stood for, and that's why he embraced it. Um, in terms of like, what if we remove monuments, won't we erase history? Well, people don't really learn history from monuments, right? People learn history from a history class. We're, look, we're still talking about Robert E. Lee here. Um, you're still gonna learn about Robert E. Lee. Um, they learn history from textbooks. They learn history from museums. Uh, there's not a whole lot of like monument uh, history learning happening in this country. So we put up monuments to celebrate people, mainly. Uh, these monuments, we have to remember, were purposefully erected to send a strong message to all who walked in their shadows about who was still charged in the city. And you're going to see a trend. Usually, like, um, there's a big wave of monuments going up in the turn of the century, 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, when the early African-American civil rights movement was kicking off. And then there is another, the next wave is in the 1960s, in the, the major African-American civil rights movement there. Um, so a lot of these monuments are put up as a way to remind black people, here's who is still in charge of this city. Um, and if it was truly about honoring Confederates, they're, they're very picky and choosy about which Confederates they want to honor. There's, there's not a whole lot of statues for James Longstreet, who turned out to be pretty nice to black people after the Civil War. He was on the wrong side of the war during the war. Um, he changed after the war. He became a better person. And for that... Uh, it turns out that there's a lot of Southern racists who maybe just were not as interested in building monuments for James Longstreet. Something else to think about with these monuments. Imagine how it would feel to view a monument to a man who fought, put yourself in the shoes of a black person, right? Imagine how it would feel to view a monument to a man who fought to deny you your humanity. How's that? How would that feel? Um, I think, well, ultimately, I think if you fly the Confederate flag on your own private property, that's up to you, right? That, that's, a, that's a free speech issue. And if you're going to do that, though, I think you should at least acknowledge, sure, if you want to say, no, nah, it's just heritage, it's not hate. Well, at least acknowledge that it's the heritage of white supremacy, because that's what it is, right? The, they made it crystal clear in their secession documents and the Alexander Stevens speech what they were for. They were for white supremacy. So you have... You can't like pick and choose which parts of the Confederacy you're remembering and which parts you're forgetting, right? That's the, the big lesson here. Another question for those people who are so obsessed with Southern history, why do you only care about just four years of Southern history? Um, there's a big, broad, expansive history here that you could be celebrating and, and learning about and, and honoring and putting up 
monuments for, but it seems that there's just like four years that only anybody, you know, when people talk about Southern history, they just care about that. The Germans have figured a way around this, right? Uh, I don't see many people who say, I need to fly a Nazi flag to celebrate my German heritage. No, they don't do that. Uh, Nazism is not like, it was a short-lived thing in German history. There's many other ways to celebrate German ancestry and German heritage. You don't have to fly a Nazi flag to do that. And you wouldn't do that because you know that people associate that flag with hate, just like they do with the Confederate flag. Okay. <clears throat> another, uh, another meme that's worth pausing and thinking about. If, if someone kidnapped your child and sold them, where would you want us to put the statue of that person? That's how you should think about Robert E. Lee statues. And let's pause for just a brief humor break here and acknowledge the fact that there are some god-awful Confederate monuments that exist in this world. And maybe some of them are so terrible that we should leave them up just to laugh at them. Uh, for example, there's this one Nathan Bedford Forrest statue in Nashville. And uh, you got you to gotta see it. Just, it's, it's, a, it's a thing of beauty. It looks like it was maybe made by like a junior high art class. So... Um, let's get to the last question. How did this myth originate? Where did this thing come from? And, and how did it spread so far and wide? So right after the Civil War, um, you see these, these men involved in the war. Jubal Early was a general in the war. And he said, most that, the most that is left to us, he wrote this, this is a letter he wrote to Robert E. Lee. He said, the most that is left to us is the history of our struggle. It ought to be accurately written. We lost nearly everything, but but honor, and that should be religiously guarded. Edward Pollard, a newspaper writer down in Richmond, all that is left of the South is the war of ideas. The war may have decided the restoration of the Union and the extinction of slavery, but the war did not decide Negro equality. Those were, th those were thoughts that were coming out uh, right after the, the South lost the Civil War. That's what these guys are thinking about. John B. Gordon in 1900 um, big leader in the United Confederate Veterans says, when Union veterans tell me and my Southern comrades that teaching our children that the cause for which we fought and our comrades died is all wrong, I must earnestly protest. In the name of the future manhood of the South, I protest. What are we to teach them? If we cannot teach them that their fathers were right, it follows that these Southern children must be taught that they were wrong. I never will be ready to have my children taught that I was ever wrong and that the cause of my people was unjust and holy. So what happens, right? Right after the Civil War, the South has lost big time. Few victories have ever been as absolute or as big as the U.S.'s victory in the Civil War. Ulysses S. Grant's nickname was U.S., and the, sometimes people said that stands for unconditional surrender, and that's what he got. Like, the South surrendered everything. Um, Southern men struggled for ways to maintain their dignity and maintain their honor, to stand in front of their children, still look themselves in the mirror, uh, and face the fact that they got their butts kicked. Uh, at the end of this war, it, it turns hard in the North's favor after that Lincoln election in 1864, and the defeat is overwhelming for the South. They lose everything, right? They lose four million slaves are freed. Uh, it's over. So Jubal Early and Edward Pollard, those two guys we just read quotes from earlier, they figure out we maybe lost the military war, but we can win the war for history. And they set out to immediately begin writing books about the war that paint the South in a very positive light. 
and Alexander Stevens joins us. And suddenly Alexander Stevens is saying, you know, when we seceded, it wasn't really about slavery. He's totally ignoring his own cornerstone speech. So they start, they start, um, whitewashing slavery and it's not about slavery and it's and, and they come up with all these myths that we just went through and they put them in these books and the north basically says ah eh, okay whatever if that makes you feel better about yourself the north ultimately chooses healing and reconciliation with the white south over continuing to pursue justice and equality for african americans in reconstruction we'll talk about that in a couple more topics um and then these pro so basically these pro Confederate views these lost cause myths they go unchallenged uh, by Northerners. W. E. B. Du Bois, that guy I read earlier who was bashing Robert E. Lee, he's one of the lone voices out there who's really trying to bash some of these lost cause myths in the 1800s and 1900s, early 1900s. So what? How did it spread? Well, I'm going to give credit to a couple groups. United Daughters of the Confederacy launched in the late 1890s. They were big. They had 100,000 people. It's mostly elite Southern women. And what they would do is they'd fundraise and they'd get a bunch of money and then they'd lobby a local government to build a monument uh, for Confederate veterans. And it's the 1890s is about when we're getting, Confederate veterans are starting to die. And so this is where you're going to see a huge wave of monuments start to get built in the 1890s and early 1900s. Then after monuments, they go on to... to, to their next mission is let's... Uh, Let's monopolize textbooks. And so they launch a textbook committee in, in 1919, and they encourage school boards to reject any textbook that don't accord full justice to the South. And I've got a couple screenshots of what their, book, what their textbook committee um, um, plan or manual said. You know, So they, they would send women all across uh, local school districts, and they would lobby school boards, and they would say, we want to review what your history books, what history books are you using in your classrooms? And they would say, that's not approved by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And they would get librarians to stamp books and say, this is uh, unjust to the South. Uh, And in in a short period of time, they basically were able to remove any textbook that was uh, not propping up the lost cause myths and replace it with books that were totally going soft on the South. And and you can see their list here. Reject any book. Get rid of any book that is saying that the South fought for slavery, that glorifies Abraham Lincoln, um, that doesn't talk about the South as being heroic. You know, so they needed all these things. They needed all these supports to be in place in, in order to get the school districts to um, buy these books that, that propped up the lost cause myth. So that's one thing that helped it grow national is like, even if you were living up here in Minnesota, um, and you didn't. You were not surrounded by Confederate monuments. You might still have a textbook plopped in your lap that would be totally like pro-South uh, in the Civil War. Another group would be the Sons of Confederate Veterans. The United Daughters of the Confederacy did a lot of work on the early monuments, and the Sons of Confederate Veterans have done a lot of work on the later monuments. So they're a little bit a smaller group, but they're still big, 30,000 people. They file a lot of lawsuits to protect monuments. So, And they also have pushed for more Confederate iconography, more Confederate symbols. They want them on license plates. They want to challenge school boards that punish students for wearing Confederate flags. So they will often swoop in on those occasions. So they've, they've pushed the lost cause myth. By the way, I'm eligible to be in that organization. Um, but just because your ancestor fought for the Confederacy does not mean you automatically have to defend everything that they did for the 10th time. 
Hollywood also plays a role in, in spreading the Lost Cause myth. Birth of a Nation, one of the biggest, earliest silent films, uh, incredibly racist movie, pushed this notion that the, the, South was, um, the South was actually the ones fighting for just causes. Gone with the Wind pushed a Lost Cause myth. Happy Slaves, Aggressive North, Tyrannical North. Uh, in the Civil War documentary, the, the most watched documentary, historical documentary, the most watched documentary about the Civil War, um, featured heavily. The most featured speaker in that miniseries was Shelby Foote, and he's a, he's a lost cause historian. He buys into the lost cause. All right. It's spread all over the place. This lost cause thing is not just limited to the South. It's everywhere. You see it in Minnesota. I'm sure you've probably seen a Confederate flag or two in your lifetime. Um, you, you maybe see people wear Confederate shirts, Confederate belt buckles, and it, right? we can't forget that this is not just a Southern problem. Um, to sum up, there are some possible short answer questions I just want to make you aware of. Maybe I'll give you that chart of when the Confederate monuments were built, and I might ask you a question as to, like, uh, can you explain um, any, you know, a dev- causes and effects, basically. You know, can you explain causes for the, the chart and effects of, of all of these Confederate monuments? So causes and effects of the lost cause. Maybe I'll give you a quote um, from somebody we looked at here. And you would be asked again, causes and effects. What what caused this person to feel this way? What were the effects of that? In in a way, it's kind of asking for causes and effects of the lost cause. And then maybe maybe I'll give you uh, some Confederate iconography, some lost cause symbols, and ask you to dispel the myths that these symbols are built on. You know, this whole Confederate flag is not a symbol of hate. Um, that would be a possible short answer question. To end, I want to point out one last thing, that this is, this is a massive myth. This lost cause is a huge myth about the Civil War, and it's a dangerous myth. It's one of the biggest myths of U.S. history. It's dangerous because it further entrenches white supremacy. It really, it, it, it tries to disguise it and hide it, that it existed, that it was so prevalent during this time. Um, it's also dangerous because it's very clear that it has spread far beyond the South, uh, I also think that it, it pushes ignorance, right? And ignorance breeds inaction. The U.S. needs to face what it would rather not see. As George W. Bush has said, a great nation does not hide its history. It faces its flaws and corrects them. We have centuries-old wounds that are still raw um, because they never healed in the first place. And the lost cause myth is getting in the way of that healing. And that, folks, is where we will stop our review of the Lost Cause myth. So hopefully this review will help you do some myth-busting in the future, right? Evidence over ideology.